Good morning. It is such an honor to be here with you. This is a church that I have uh, heard so much about uh, via John and Lindsay ever since they first heard about you uh, when we were serving together in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, as John mentioned earlier, we've uh, we've had the privilege, Megan and I have had the privilege to know the Diedrichs for many years, and they are among our dearest friends. And it has just been such a joy to see this materialize um, from the moment John began um, talking with you all about the possibility of coming uh, to hearing over, over the last um, year plus about how it's going, um, getting regular updates about you all. Uh, and I can just say that every time I talk with John, and uh, Megan talks with Lindsay, that their affection for you as a church is unmistakable. Uh, the Lord has given you um, a pastor's family that loves you dearly and has your best interest at heart, and they um, they can't help but um, celebrate the work God is doing in and through you. So thank you for being a blessing to our dear friends, John and Lindsay, and um, Please don't take for granted uh, this family that that God has given you. They they are incredible, and it's one of our greatest honors uh, to have them as friends. Uh, thank you also for the chance to bring God's word to you this morning. This is uh, this is super exciting. It's actually my first time ever in Phoenix, so I've been enjoying uh, getting to to know the surrounding area and um, and I'm excited to think with you this morning about God's word. In her uh, absorbing book, Hero of the Empire, Candace Millard tells uh, the story of Winston Churchill's exploits in the Boer War in South Africa at the turn of the 20th century. So this was like 40 years before uh, Churchill would make a name for himself on an international stage through World War II. At just 25 years old, Churchill managed in the Boer War to both escape from a war prison and travel 300 miles to safety, to freedom, without a compass, a map, a weapon, or any money. I've loved stories like this for a long time. Uh, when I was 16, our family left Virginia and went on a trip out west uh, to uh, various places. I think the closest we got to here was the Grand Canyon or the Four Corners. I don't know which is which is closer. I don't know exactly where I am. I just know I'm somewhere in the in the bottom left. Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, th this was yeah summer of 2000, and we uh, came on this trip out west. And uh, I remember visiting Alcatraz Island in the San Francisco Bay Area because I was a and I was excited to do this because I was a huge fan of the uh, Sean Connery Nicolas Cage movie uh, The Rock. And uh, af after that trip, I just remember diving into. Um, is prison breaks and and just the topic of escapes and and uh, I, I just learned all I could about famous famous escapes. Even today, the the Shawshank Redemption might might be one of, is definitely one of my favorite movies. Uh, next to as John and Lindsay know, next to Space Jam. Uh, our passage uh, this morning that we're going to be looking at provides all the drama of a prison break and more. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts. Chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Uh, this is the sequel to the gospel according to Luke. Uh, 
So Luke wrote um, Acts to, to tell the, the story of the, the birth of the church and um, the, the earliest Christians as the gospel spread from Jerusalem uh, to, to Judea, to Samaria, and um, toward the ends of the earth. I just have two simple points that, that I think arise out of this chapter, uh, Acts chapter 12. Um, God, number one, God answers prayer. And number two, God answers pride. God answers prayer, and God answers pride. First, God answers prayer. At the outset of chapter 12 here, Luke is panning his camera from the church at Antioch, that's where he's been focusing, back to the the church in Jerusalem. So we're going to start reading his report, his update on what's going on in this original uh, church of Jerusalem. We're going to start reading in verse 1. Listen listen as I read. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized Peter, He put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now pause. Let's make sure we we understand the scene here. There are no less than six Herods in the New Testament. It's very confusing. This one here is Herod Agrippa I. He's the grandson of Herod the Great who infamously tricked the wise men uh, and tried to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem. Merry Christmas, right? But by now, um, Herod Agrippa, his grandson, is ruling over even more territory than Grandpa did. So of the six Herods, it's Herod the Great who is most famous to us because of the Christmas story, but it was this Herod in Acts 12 who was the most powerful. And what did he use his power to do? Verse 1 says, he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Who belonged to the church. I love that little phrase. Every Christian should be able to be described in shorthand like this. You belong to the church. Luke could easily have said that Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the way or who belonged to Christ. All of those would have been true, but that is not what Luke says. Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And this is not the so-called universal church, all Christians across time and all places. No, this is a local church, the first one, in fact the church in Jerusalem. See, Luke understands, and I think even Herod understands, that to come after Christians is to come after the local church. Earlier this year in Madhya Pradesh, which is a a state in central India, the government enacted an anti-conversion law. And a month later, uh, a mob of activists stormed a church service destroying the building. Many of the believers there are now still in prison because of this anti-conversion law. In fact, in one town, Ratlam, 265,000 people are in this town and only two churches are left. 
because all the others have been shut down. Two Sundays ago, during a Baptist church service in southern Nigeria, two Christians were killed and dozens more were abducted and carted off at gunpoint. Today, this Sunday, a church in East Asia, pastored by one of my friends, doesn't have a place to meet because the authorities recently stormed into the service and told them they cannot meet anymore. They are intent on doing so, but they can't find a place that can accommodate them because the authorities are on their trail and looking at watching their every move. That was one of four like-minded gospel preaching churches, much like this one, in terms of the theology, the philosophy of ministry, the ecclesiology, even the order of service. It was one of four churches just last month that was targeted on a particular Sunday. To thwart the progress of Christianity, you must target churches. And Herod, it turns out, was more theologically astute than some spiritual free agents today who believe but don't see the need to belong. In the first century and in other parts of the world today, from here to Nigeria to India to other parts of East Asia, it is clear for all to see who belongs to the church and who does not. And the same should be true for you. Well, what is the nature of Herod's persecution? Verse 2 tells us. He kills James, the brother of John. Along with Peter, James and John, you may recall, were part of Jesus' inner circle. And do you remember what Jesus promised these two brothers, the sons of thunder, uh, after they had the audacity to ask to sit at his right and left hand in glory? He said, prophetically it turns out, do you not know the baptism, that is the, the suffering that I must undergo? In, in other words, James and John, can you handle what it will take to be associated with me? The death I'm going to experience, you will experience. Not an atoning death for sin, but an, a, a death for being affiliated with me. Can you handle that? The cup, he says, I drink, you will drink. And the baptism I experience, you will experience too. And here in Acts 12 is the fulfillment of that promise to James. Herod takes off his head, making him the first of the apostles to die for the faith. And Herod notices, verse 3, that it really pleased the crowd. It really pleased the Jews. So he goes and arrests another pillar in the church, Peter, and plans to trot him out for a show trial and execution as well. The only thing delaying the inevitable is this feast of the unleavened bread, a week-long period after the Passover meal in which it was against Jewish custom to hold trials and executions. So it's just a waiting game for Peter. His fate is going to be just like James's. It's just a waiting game until the, the clock on the feast runs out. But his fast approaching fate, Peter's fast approaching fate, is not the only thing going on in the story. Look at verse 5. 
So Peter was kept in prison. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Can you hear the drawing of the lines, the sound of a battle commencing? Herod's got Peter in prison. Herod's got Peter right where he wants him. Herod owns Peter, but the church is crying out to the one who owns Herod. They're desperate. The believers are desperate. And what does desperation do? What ought desperation do? Drive us to our knees. A pastor named H.B. Charles puts it strikingly. Quote, prayer is arguably the most objective measurement of our dependence on God. Think about it like this, he writes. The things you pray about are the things you trust God to handle. The things you neglect to pray about are the things you trust you can handle on your own. These believers know they can't handle Peter's situation on their own, and so they are directing their gaze not to the prison cell, but to the skies. Verse 6, Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So here it is. This, this is the end, right? Uh, the feast clock will expire in a few hours, and come morning, Herod will be able to parade his latest trophy before the people. This is Peter's last night in his cell, and surely on earth. So what's he doing? <laughs> He's snoozing. I mean, I love sleeping, not to brag. I'm really good at sleeping. But if I were Peter, I would not be sleeping here. But Peter is at peace with the Lord's will in his last night on earth. And let's not over-spiritualize this. I know we're in church and this is a sacred moment and you expect to hear holy things but listen, Peter did not have God's eye view of the whole story that we do. He didn't know how it would turn out. Peter had never read Acts 12. All he knows is that his friend James got his head chopped off and then the soldiers came directly for him. So let's pick up the story. Verse 7, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck, that's the angel, he struck Peter on the side. The King James says he smote him. Don't mess with angels. They'll slap you when you're sleeping. <laughs> he struck Peter on the side. The angel woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And Peter did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He didn't know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. This is history's first automatic door. And they, they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, 
Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. This last statement here in verse 12, along with verse 5, bookend the miraculous escape. It's like a frame on a picture in, 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 in your house. The purpose of the frame is not to draw attention to itself. The purpose of the frame is direct to direct your gaze to what's in the middle. And here, verses 5 and verse 12 frame or bookend this story. Look back up at verse 5. Earnest prayer for him, for Peter, was made to God by the church. Verse 12, Peter arrives at the house where, quote, many were gathered together and were praying. These two bookends don't just frame the story, though. They explain it. In the book of Acts, prayer is mentioned 21 times. And when it shows up, this is, this is interesting. I, didn't, I wouldn't have realized this unless, I, unless I, I read it and someone pointed it out to me. 21 times prayer shows up in the book of Acts, and when it shows up, it is overwhelmingly public and corporate. Do not underestimate the power of corporate prayer. Private prayer is important, but do not underestimate the importance of corporate prayer. You do it on Sunday mornings in your prayers of praise or confession. Of course, this morning it was a prayer of praise and in the pastoral prayer, which, which, we just, which we just heard. And then you have a whole prayer meeting on the second Sunday evening of every month. Now I know, and I don't know how I know this, but I've heard that it can be tough to concentrate, tough to engage, tough to stay locked in mentally. Of course, I know this from personal experience. I mean, there have been many prayer services in which I have caught myself saying the loud congregational amen to a prayer I didn't hear. Of course, that's a problem. I'm not going to stand up here in this pulpit and say that it's fine to be so easily distracted. It's, it's pretty pathetic, actually. But I do want to say that we shouldn't be surprised that it can be so hard to concentrate. It's not just this random thing. We shouldn't be surprised. And not just because the satanic powers are out to distract us by any means possible. After all, the satanic powers attend prayer meetings also. But also, we shouldn't be surprised because prayer is just not designed to be entertaining. And in a culture that has catechized us to be, and not just our kids, let's be honest, guys, us as well, okay? Uh, adults as well, in a culture that is forming us, catechizing us to be addicted to words and images and screens and fascinating trivia and immediate results. No wonder prayer can feel like such a slog. And that's why if you feel weak, I should not say if, when you feel weak and distractible in your personal prayer life, it's time to lean into your congregation's prayer life. 
But it's not just about you, of course. It's not just about you needing the help and needing to kind of congregationalize your prayer life, go public with your prayer life, show up when your church gathers to pray. It's not just about you to pray with your church, to come on the second Sunday evening of every month is a declaration of love. In Megan Hill's excellent book, A Place to Belong, she writes this, quote, a church prayer meeting doesn't look like much. A group of people spending an hour with their eyes closed, taking turns addressing an unseen God is unlikely to draw the acclaim of the world. At best, it seems like a quaint ritual. At worst, outright foolishness. The people of the world dismiss our intercessions with barely a thought. But though they don't know it, the church at prayer is their very best friend. People walking in darkness have no better ally than a group of believers on their knees, united in the work of pleading for the light of Christ to shine in their undying souls. The best way you can love your community, you can love your neighbors, you can love your unbelieving friends, is yes, to share Christ with them. But also, it's to get in your car and drive away from them and come here and hit your knees with all these other brothers and sisters and ask the God of heaven to change the hearts of those you love. A church that is to be found faithful will be a church found praying. So Peter has arrived at Mary's house where the believers are literally in the act of praying for him. Don't miss the humor in this scene, okay? Verse 13. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and to all the brothers. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and didn't find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Look back at verse 17. Did you catch the simplicity? You know, Peter's breathless. He's just arrived. Did you catch the simplicity of his description of what had happened? Quote, the Lord brought me out of prison. The Lord brought me out of prison. In other words, Peter, as he recounts the story, he knows he did nothing. He was locked down in a fortress cell, chained to multiple guards, fast asleep, and all of a sudden, light. The clinking of chains hitting the ground, a word from outside himself instructing him what to do and whom to follow, the, cre the, the creaking of iron gates giving way 
to freedom. If that sounds a little familiar, it's because it's, it's basically an enacted parable of your own salvation. If you are not trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, you are in the right place. This church is thrilled that you're here. This is not a church just for uh, moral people, spiritual people, Christian people, put together people. This, This is a church for all people. And I can tell you that the Christians here are not put together people, people who have figured everything out, people who have arrived. They're just those who have come to the end of themselves. And they've come to see that they've been spinning their wheels their whole life, trying to build their life around other things. And they've come to see their need for mercy. And they've embraced the provision of Jesus Christ to meet their need. Listen, if you're not trusting in Jesus this morning, you might fancy yourself a free man, a free woman. But you are slumbering on the floor of a prison cell shackled by your sin, without hope and without God, and you desperately need a prison break, but it's going to have to come from outside of you. The, the, The world tells you that when you have problems, the solution is to look within, right? Discover yourself, embrace yourself, express yourself. No. That will not get you out of the prison cell of sin. You need to look outside of yourself. You need a savior to rush in, to flip on the lights, and to lead you out into the freedom of forgiveness and peace and being right with the God who has made you. And that's precisely what the Christian gospel and only the Christian gospel offers you this morning. There's a famous hymn that followers of Jesus around the world love to sing. You all sing it here at Redeeming Grace. It was written in 1738 by a man named Charles Wesley, who had recently put his faith in Christ. In fact, many uh, scholars think that it was the very first hymn he wrote, which is impressive. And I can't help but wonder if Charles Wesley had read Acts 12 shortly before he wrote these words. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. If that's never happened to you, then you can talk to the author of your life and ask him to add it to your biography. Ask him to invade your life and to rescue you from the sentence of death. Jesus, you see, took the sword, not of Herod's wrath. Peter died at the hand of of Herod. I'm sorry, James died at the hand of Herod from Herod's wrath, but Jesus took the sword of God's wrath, which your sins deserve, so that you could be liberated. Friend, why keep exhausting yourself on this treadmill, this treadmill of following your own heart, being true to yourself, when all the while Jesus has shown up and saying, come, come out of your prison cell. 
follow me. So back to the story. Peter's just crashed a prayer meeting and he's, as I said, breathlessly recounted what happened. And then as my dad would say, he skedaddles. Uh, The authorities are aware of Mary's house. And so surely they'll be arriving soon. Peter leaves for a more secret location. Two brief lessons here, though, before we move on to the final scene. Two brief lessons before we move on to the the final scene. The first is that God doesn't always answer prayer in the way we want. Now, how in the world, like, usually for a preacher, you know that the the people are, are tracking with you if you're getting head nods and smiles and amens. But in this case, I'll know, I know you're tracking with me if, I ha- if you have a confused look. And that's because how am I getting this application that God doesn't always answer prayer the way we want from this story when that seems to be precisely what has just happened? Isn't this story absolutely about God answering prayer the way we want? Yes. For Peter. But what about James? I imagine the church prayed just as earnestly for him when he was arrested. Father, please spare the life of our dear brother James. Father, please spare the life of our dear brother Peter. One gets beheaded, the other shows up at the door. And God was no less in control over James's fate than over Peter's, nor was he any less good. As one author puts it, God's ability should cause our hearts to soar and ask for the impossible. But his sovereignty and wisdom should keep us grounded. They, that is his sovereignty and wisdom, remind us that although God can do the impossible, he doesn't have to, and we can trust him regardless. Any other arrangement ends only in discontentment, especially if we hold God hostage to an outcome he's never promised. We'll always lack peace. We will always lack peace when we judge God's love for us by how many of our prayers are answered with a yes. We will always lack peace when we judge God's love for us by how many of our prayers are answered with a yes. But when he does answer yes, we shouldn't be shocked. And that's the second lesson. Did you notice how the believers respond when the servant girl, Rhoda, and by the way, that I love that her name is recorded. Uh, I'm just going to push pause on the sermon for a second and say this. If you're a skeptic, if you're someone who tends to think or to struggle to believe that the New Testament is a reliable historical document, there's a, I think, very compelling kind of cumulative case from a number of angles that can be made historically to convince you that actually not just the Gospels, but the whole New Testament is historically reliable. But just one little thing that I think is interesting. This isn't conclusive. This is just kind of suggestive. It's interesting how much granular detail 
seemingly random information is inserted, which if it weren't true, would make it all the easier to falsify the story. It's almost like the authors of the Bible are giving you place names and person names so that you can go to the original hearers so that they would have been able to go and see for themselves if this was true. So I'll, I'll give you one other example. Um, we, we know Simon of Cyrene was the one uh, that was, you know, tapped to carry Jesus's cross up to Golgotha. But Mark goes out of his way to say, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Rufus and Alexander. We don't need that detail. But it's almost like Mark is daring the skeptic and saying, if you don't believe me, you know who to go talk to. This really happened. Rufus, Alexander, Rhoda, the servant girl. All right, back to the sermon in my notes. Uh, he rushes into the room and uh, Rhoda rushes into the room and says, Peter's at the gate. And they say, you're crazy. In other words, this is the humor in the scene. In other words, what they're saying to her is, it's kind of the way I am with my kids sometimes, you know, please don't interrupt again. We are busy praying that Peter would be released from prison. Speaking of my kids, if I give one of them a present, something I know they want and have been, have been asking for, it's natural and good if their response to that gift is, is surprise, excitement. But if instead of surprise, I look in their little faces and see downright shock and unbelief because they can't fathom a world in which daddy would give them the desire of their hearts, something is terribly wrong. Brothers and sisters, we can be like that with God. We can be so shocked when he responds to our prayers in the way that we've asked that it, it, it must break his heart because we treat him as stingy when in fact he is overflowing with grace. Brothers and sisters, our Father in heaven loves to respond to big requests in big ways. So come to prayer services, ask him for great things together, and then get ready to rejoice when he answers with a yes. God answers prayer. And secondly, and more briefly, God answers pride. So this is point two. Those were two subpoints in point one. This is point two. Final point, God answers pride. There's one last scene in the story. Look at verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, one of you really needs to name a son Blastus. That's, that's incredible. The king's chamberlain, that's just his personal servant, they asked for peace because they're, uh, actually not his servant, I should say. It's more of like his right-hand man, his deputy. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Now, so, okay, what's going on here? Uh, some of your eyes just kind of glazed over with that historical detail. Here's, here's what you just need to know. You have two cities, two ancient cities, Tyre and Sidon, names that may ring a bell from the Old Testament. Uh, at one point, were enemies of the nation of Israel. 
they were actually at this time independent cities. And yet because they were port cities on the coast, they didn't have any agricultural output of their own. They were dependent on food from crops inland. In other words, from Herod's jurisdiction. Herod, we don't know why, but he's not happy with these people. There's, there's some kind of political conflict brewing, and the leaders from these two towns realize, we've got to be savvy here or we're going to starve out here on the coast. We need food. So instead of going straight to the top, they go to Herod's right-hand man, this fellow Blastus, and they kind of ingratiate themselves to him. In verse 21, the drama then intensifies. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. The voice of a God and not of a man. The Jewish historian Josephus not a believer in Jesus, but um, he, he actually recounts this story, which is another reason why you can assume that the Bible in your lap is historically reliable. An unbelieving historian from this time recounts this very story, and he says that Herod was wearing silver that caught the light of the sun, and it gave him, uh, it created a kind of dazzling effect. The voice of a God and not a man. The voice of a God and not a man. The voice of a God and not a man. Verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Herod is struck. Same word from verse 7 when the angel smote Peter in the cell. There, an angel strikes Peter to free him. Here, an angel strikes Herod to slay him. You see the contrast? A man under the sentence of death, released to life. A man at the apex of life, reduced to death. But that's not the only contrast Luke, the author, is painting. What were the people dependent on Herod for? What? What's the answer? Food. What is Herod now? Food. This is a grisly scene. It's because pride is a grotesque sin. Herod being eaten by worms? It's hard to stomach that. Because it's hard for God to stomach human pride. When the crowd was chanting that hymn of praise, Herod should have corrected the record. But in silence, he absorbed, he arrogated to himself the praise that belonged to someone else. Herod was a glory thief. Herod was a glory thief. Remember why Herod arrested Peter in the first place? You remember from the very beginning of the chapter? Because he realized, oh man, I got the head of James here. And this is really pleasing. He realized it was very pleasing to the Jews, to the crowds. And he wanted more of where that attention came from. 
And before we scoff, we should look in the mirror. Because we are all glory thieves. We are all little Herods. We want others to be dependent on us. To need us. And not just to adore us. Oh, we're not that humble. We aren't content with people adoring us. We need them to voice their admiration so that others can come to their senses and see us for the rock stars we are. Is there any way lately in which you have been a mini Herod, angling for attention, thirsty for recognition, giving your best energy to wowing man? Pride can show up in a thousand ways. Pride can show up in the inability to take criticism, the inability to ever be wrong, to ever lose an argument. In the desire to be seen as impressive, that's probably the most intuitive to us when we think of pride. Yes, pride, that's wanting to be seen as impressive, but you know pride can also manifest itself in the desire to be seen as not so impressive to be seen as humble, but still to be seen. What thing do you most wish you could overhear someone praising you for? Like, insert your own name here, but you know, if you could just overhear a conversation in which someone said, uh, Matt is such an amazing blank. Matt is so good at blank. What is it that you most want to hear in that blank for you? What thing about you bothers you most when it's overlooked? Maybe it's a way you serve in, in the church. Maybe it's, it's the way you serve at home. Like what thing bothers you most when people don't notice it and mention it? And thank you for it. We could go on and on excavating the Herodness from our hearts in all its multifaceted forms. But know this, since God loves us, he's not interested in hurting our pride. He wants to destroy it. Because human pride before a holy God is lethal. I mean, is there a clearer lesson from this story? Human pride before a holy God is lethal. Pride is lethal. And friends, it is only the sheer mercy of this mighty, holy God that, is, that stands between us and the worms. Now I'm going to read verse 23 again, but this time followed by verse 24. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Look, this is one of the most devastatingly awesome contrasts in your Bible. The teenagers here would call it savage. All right, this, listen, 
Do you, do you see the contrast here? The voice of a God, not a man. The voice of a God, not a man. The voice of a God, not a man. The voice of Herod goes silent and gives way to the word of God. The crowd had been enchanted with Herod, mesmerized by his speech. It probably seemed like he had all the power and promise in the world, but now the rock star is a corpse just like grandpa. And all the while, the speech of God, the voice of God, the word of God is multiplying and gaining ground. The king of kings gets the last word. He did in Acts 12 and he does today. In closing, I I love the way uh, John Stott summarizes the chapter. Quote, one cannot fail to admire the artistry with which Luke depicts the complete reversal of the church's situation. At the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on the rampage, arresting and persecuting church leaders. At the end, he is himself struck down. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is God's power to overthrow human plans and establish his own in their place. Redeeming grace, you serve a God who cannot be contained by the prisons of human plans. So go to him boldly because he loves to answer prayer. But stand before him humbly because he also answers pride. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that no matter what is going on in our lives this morning, what the bank account reads, what the medical prognosis says, what our relationship status is, who inhabits the White House, the powers of this world are no match for a God like you. As as Paul said, I am in chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Thank you for the prison break of grace that we can know you and love you and worship you this morning. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.